The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4. The Medieval World. Episode 17. The Franks. Part 2. It was necessary for Francia and Aquitaine to stand together in the face of the threat of Al-Andalus, when this new Muslim state of the Iberian Peninsula invaded the Frankish kingdom. Charles Martel, the mayor of the palace in Francia, alongside Odo the Great, the Duke of Aquitaine, fought off the aggressions of the Umayyad Caliphate and sent them back home without their leader and to some degree empty-handed. Charles Martel's tenure in control of Francia is highly significant in the fact that it changed the direction of French history. Charles was a member of the family line called the Carolingian dynasty, with its most famous member being Charles's grandson, Charlemagne. Despite being in control of Francia, Charles Martel was not a king. In fact, the king of Francia during the time around the Battle of Tours in 732, was a Merovingian monarch called Tuderic IV. But he was no more than a child when he acceded to the throne in 721, and Charles kept him in captivity during his reign. So the kings had no part to play in ruling the kingdom at this point at all. When Tuderic died in 737, Charles Martel had been ruling the Frankish kingdom anyway, so the fact that he did not appoint a successor made absolutely no difference whatsoever. Often the role of the mayor of the palace, which was Charles Martel's official posting, would be hereditary. When Charles Martel died in 743, his posting would pass down his family line, but because he had two sons, Francia would have to be split between those sons. So his eldest son, Carloman, became the mayor of the palace in the Frankish realm of Austrasia, while his other son, who would come to be known as Pepin the Short, became the mayor of the palace in the Frankish realm of Neustria. However, as can be expected after the reign of a strong and well-established leader, after their death, many individuals would challenge the two sons of Charles Martel and so they felt it would add some legitimacy to their rule to instate a new Merovingian king, something that Charles Martel had very little interest in doing. So a new Merovingian king called Schilderic III was crowned but so insignificant by now were the Frankish kings that we cannot even be certain of his parentage. Schilderic, like Tuderic, before him was denied any authority whatsoever. Carloman's rule was somewhat mysterious in that he ruled capably and actively for around six years before retiring to a monastery. Carloman could very well have been a pious man, but history tells us that his brother, Pepin the Short, was a very ambitious man who may have coerced his brother into this course of action, and he could have been supported by the Pope, who himself, due to his high religious standing, could be very influential as Catholic rulers felt more security if they were legitimised by God, and the way to obtain this blessing could be through the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. If this was the case, then this particular time is incredibly significant in European history and possibly a moment that is not referenced enough. The Pope at the time was Pope Zachary, and he was having significant problems 
with the Lombards in Italy, attempting to control and plunder the Catholic churches under the King Liutprand. However, the papacy was also having its issues with the Byzantines who were politically in charge of Rome but had changed the political attitudes of Catholicism by taking a new iconoclastic attitude towards icon worship, with icon worship being something that the Pope still supported. So Pope Zachary would negotiate a peace with Liutprand in order to get Liutprand to turn his aggressions towards the Byzantine provincial capital at Ravenna. Pope Zachary still felt very nervous about Lombard ambitions though and with the death of Liutprand in 744 knew that he could do with more support. This is where we can place a significant amount of intrigue in the story of the relationship between Pope Zachary and Pepin, the mayor of the Palace of Neustria. We know that Pepin's older brother, Carloman, decided to renounce his position as mayor of the Palace of Austrasia in 747. It would be after this time that Pepin would approach Pope Zachary and ask him whether he believed that the title of king should be the honour of someone like Schilderich III, a man who was only king because he descended from the Merovingian dynasty of kings, or whether the honour should be that of a man like Pepin, who was the actual ruler of the kingdom. Pope Zachary's response is something that would shape European politics for many centuries to come. Zachary declared that it was Pepin who should be the actual king and would allow Pepin to legitimately, in the eyes of God, officially depose Schilderic III and declare himself the King of the Franks in 751. This would mark the beginning of the Carolingian dynasty of Frankish kings, the descendants of Charles Martel. Figures of Europe in centuries to come would place great importance on papal approval to determine who should be kings of their respective Christian realms and there would also be great importance on papal Disapproval, which would often come in the form of excommunication from the Catholic Church, a feature of European medieval stories. Zachary's motivations may have been to gain the support of a powerful ally. By giving Pepin the legitimacy to rule his kingdom directly, he could invite Pepin to become involved in Italian politics and stand up against the possible aggressions of the Lombards after the papacy and the Lombards had successfully expelled the Byzantines from Ravenna. With Pepin's coronation at God's approval came a duty and a responsibility to protect God's church from its enemies and in this case, following Byzantine expulsion from Italy, it would be the Lombards. Pepin wasted little time in attacking the Lombards in the now former Byzantine Exarchate of Ravenna and defeating them before handing the conquered territories over to the Pope in the year 756 in an event called the Donation of Pepin. The new papal territory became known as the Papal States. Pepin eventually died in the year 768 and the rule of the Kingdom of the Franks passed down to Pepin's son, Charlemagne and Carloman. Charlemagne Charlemagne, younger brother of Carloman, was a considerable man. By most accounts, he was tall and towered over most of his contemporaries, admittedly at a time when we believe that the average height of a Frenchman was less than you would find today. It was suggested that along with his height, he was well built, so he would have had an impressive and awesome physical stature. He would have been approximately a ripe 21 years old at the time of his father's death. Carloman and Charlemagne were very wary of each other, to the point where Charlemagne decided to enter into a political marriage with the daughter of the King of the Lombards. The King of the Lombards was a man called Desiderius, and he would have ambitions of gaining influence over the papal states by instating his own antipope. He failed in this quest, so Charlemagne's marriage to the Lombard princess Desiderata was a concern for the successful and newly elected Pope Stephen III. The following year, Charlemagne declared his marriage to Desiderata void. 
Carla Mann died at a mysteriously young age, just three years after he and his brother acceded to the Frankish thrones, and Charlemagne made a move to take control of his brother's former lands in order to reunite the Frankish kingdom under one rule again. Carloman's wife fled Francia into the lands of the Lombards in Italy, being ruled by Desiderius, who welcomed them warmly as enemies of Charlemagne, the man who shamed Desiderius's own daughter. Desiderius appealed to the Pope to recognise Carloman's children as the rightful successors to the throne of the Frankish kingdom. But this came to nothing, as the Pope would see a much more fruitful relationship in prospect with the powerful-looking Charlemagne. Charlemagne was viewed already as a capable king, with intelligence and authority that was apparent both in his personality and his politics. The notion that Charlemagne was a factor in the downfall and demise of his older brother is impossible to ignore, and his reign after becoming the sole ruler of the Frankish kingdom served only to cement his reputation for his capabilities. Authority in the Duchy of Aquitaine had waned since the days of Odo the Great earlier in the 8th century, and Aquitanian autonomy was taken away from them in a direct aftermath of Pepin the Short's death in 768. The Duchy would become subject to Charlemagne's Francia, which signalled the beginning of his imperial expansion. The death of his brother Carloman enticed a close relationship between Charlemagne and the papacy, which enabled the papacy to invite Charlemagne to do battle with the Lombards in Italy. But Charlemagne had already started expanding his influence elsewhere. In 772, Charlemagne had started war with the Saxons in the north of his realm. The Saxons were a group of pagan Germanic tribes who were to the east of the Rhine River, which was once the political border between the Romans of Gaul in the west and the Germanic tribes in the east. The Saxons were claimed to have attacked the Frankish city of Deventer, forcing Charlemagne to declare war on them. But some historians believe that Charlemagne may have fabricated this story to create propaganda about the Saxons falsely being the aggressors. This may not be all that far-fetched because historians also suspect that the donation of Pepin was actually a fabricated document by the papacy which pledged that Charlemagne's father had pledged conquered Byzantine lands in Italy to the ownership of the papacy, creating the papal states. So lies and propaganda by high-standing figures in an illiterate but politically pressurised 8th century Europe seem very possible in general. Whatever the circumstances, Charlemagne had already started campaigns against the Saxons in the lowlands of northwest Europe when his attention was turned towards the Lombards in Italy. Charlemagne campaigned in Italy against King Desiderius of the Lombards who had protected the family of Charlemagne's brother and attempted to bring them to power over Charlemagne, giving Charlemagne a justification to make war with him. The new Pope, Hadrian, actively encouraged Charlemagne, citing Desiderius as a political enemy. After a siege of the Lombard capital of Pavia, the city fell and Charlemagne captured Desiderius, deposed him and declared himself the new king of the Lombards, bringing the Lombard kingdom into the Frankish Empire, also referred to as the Carolingian Empire. This would also include the lands of Venetia and Dalmatia, and the island of Corsica. Charlemagne would turn his attentions back to the Saxons in the north before receiving an invitation to be politically involved in the affairs of the Iberian Peninsula, similarly to how the Pope invited him to be involved in Italian affairs. This time it would be at the invitation of the Muslim Wali of Barcelona and Girona, Al-Arabi, Charlemagne would take an army into northern Spain, but when he arrived, he was simply offered a tribute to leave again. Charlemagne took his tribute and retreated with his army to the city of Pamplona, traditionally a city belonging to the indigenous Basque people of northern Iberia, bordering the region of Gascony, 
alternatively referred to as Vasconia. The Basques, and similarly the Duchy of Gascony, had been in the centre of politics between the outgoing Visigoths, the incoming Umayyads, and the expanding Franks for most of the century, and we can assume that the Basques were no strangers to making diplomatic relationships with those around them. When Charlemagne retreated to Pamplona, he saw the city as part of a buffer land between the Frankish-influenced Duchy of Gascony and the foreign aggressors of the Umayyad territories of Iberia and saw fit to remove the fortifications of the city to prevent it from becoming a fortress from which anti-Frankish forces could conduct operations. This act by Charlemagne infuriated the Basques, who saw this as a disrespectful debilitation of their great city and as such, Charlemagne's army was attacked while heading back to Frankish lands. Not only was this unexpected, but it was disastrous and a harsh lesson to Charlemagne who had treated the Basque city with arrogant pomposity. Charlemagne's ambitions were not diminished in general though and he would complete his conquest of West Saxony by 782. Some have suggested that Charlemagne's treatment of the Saxons in this territory was genocidal with reports of mass execution. It can be the case with historical stories from this period to be somewhat skewed by bias but there does seem to be a sense of ruthlessness about Charlemagne and the lengths that he was willing to go to to achieve his aims. By the conclusion of the 8th century, Charlemagne had been able to bring Old Saxony and Bavaria under his direct influence. In 795, the new pope was Leo III. Leo appeared to be in between an ideological struggle between the Franks and the Byzantines. Both parties would be attracted by having a pope that would favour each of their empires because of the Christian identity of most of Europe. Papal influence was quite an important thing to have. If the other nations of Europe were Christian, they would be more likely to listen to the pope, so therein lies the importance of having a pope who favoured your nation. The Byzantines supported Leo in becoming the pope, and Charlemagne would send him gifts of treasure that may have been plundered from the Pannonian Avars who occupied lands in Eastern Europe. Pro-Byzantine individuals would have great concerns over the loyalties of Pope Leo III and in the year 799, Leo was attacked during a procession. Fortunately, pro-Frankish men rescued Leo and took him to a place of safety back in Frankish territory where he would be treated like royalty by Charlemagne. The Byzantines, in their attempts to influence the papacy by shaming Leo and deposing him, had pushed the Pope into the protection of the Franks, and what followed would further advance the fracture between the Church of Rome and the Church of Constantinople, which would result in the Great Schism of the 11th century. Leo and Charlemagne would rebuke the Byzantine Empire for having a female empress, suggesting that she would therefore be unfit to be given the title of Roman Emperor with the Byzantine Empire being the natural continuation of the celebrated classical Roman Empire. The Byzantine Empress was a woman called Irene, and ironically she stood against iconoclasm, something which had brought her dynastic predecessors into ideological conflict with the Pope earlier in the century. This made no difference to Leo and Charlemagne who would want to further cement the bond between the Franks and the papacy that had led to Charlemagne's father protecting the papacy against the Lombards a generation previous. So on Christmas Day on the year 800, Pope Leo III announced Charlemagne as the Holy Roman Emperor, a renewing of a Roman tradition of great emperors that was befitting of classical Rome and approved by the church at the city of Rome, and in the face of these Byzantine pretenders to uphold the Roman name. The Byzantines would not recognise this new Roman emperor, knowing that their realm was the true political descendant of the Roman Empire. They would declare Leo's act as illegal. Charlemagne himself would not be entirely comfortable with Leo's proclamation either, as he probably didn't fancy a potential continental war between the Frankish Empire 
and the Byzantine Empire, the two greatest political factions of the age. Charlemagne's solution was to propose marriage to the Byzantine Empress Irene. Charlemagne's suggestion may not have been completely harebrained as Irene had political opponents in Constantinople and may have believed that an alliance with Charlemagne could protect her position. Irene's opponents in Constantinople moved quickly to depose her and the idea of the marriage was gone. Charlemagne continued to reign as the King of the Franks until his death in 814, maybe in his late 60s or early 70s. Charlemagne's devotion to the church stretched beyond a simple political relationship with the Pope. Charlemagne sought to Christianise those peoples, mainly pagans, that he conquered and subjugated, and mainly in Middle Europe where he possessed the vast lands of the modern countries of Germany and Austria, and had influence over lands stretching to the modern countries of Poland, Slovakia, Hungary and Croatia, just to give a mind's eye view of just how successful Charlemagne's campaigns were. His great Christian empire overshadowed the size of the 9th century Byzantine Empire. Charlemagne initiated the construction and establishment of monasteries and cathedrals built with impressive modern architectural styles and grandeur which would naturally encourage libraries and schools and universities that would give rise to great cultural advances in Francia. Charlemagne respected the achievements of the classical Roman Empire of centuries gone by with its great advances in academia and sought to emulate that by encouraging a relationship between education and religion where one would not necessarily dominate the other. Charlemagne also made great advances in the political governance of his realm with the introduction of laws and the standardisation of coinage and the introduction of weights and measures to improve the integrity of trade within the empire. Charlemagne's achievements and legacy is considerable. Even the less obvious things, such as the introduction of spacings and punctuation to the written word in order to make writing easier to understand, and the recreation of Roman documents that had fallen into disuse that would enable great knowledge to spread throughout a previously semi-nomadic culture of Central Europe. Modernisation of agricultural techniques to the lands of Central Europe were a by-product of this spread of knowledge. The legacy of Charlemagne is very easy to understate, and as such we refer to the advances of culture during this period as the Carolingian Renaissance. After Charlemagne. Frankish tradition dictates that the kingdom shall be split between the surviving sons of the outgoing monarch upon his death. In Charlemagne's case, he had one surviving son who is known to history as Louis the Pious. We have seen so often in history that when a great ruler dies, that the rule of his realm becomes more fragile as a consequence. So Louis the Pious had seemingly an impossible task ahead of him to maintain the Frankish Empire and fill his father's shoes. Charlemagne had attempted to solve two problems very early in his own reign by dealing with the fact that Aquitaine had been recently absorbed into Francia. He declared his infant son Louis as the king of Aquitaine, ruling as a ceremonial king to acknowledge Aquitaine as a kingdom in its own right and this would also allow Louis to grow up as a named king, to preparing for life as a king. Louis would also inherit his father's title as the Holy Roman Emperor, the papal designation of Emperor of the Romans, in direct opposition to the Byzantine Emperor's claim to be the Roman Emperor. Louis would be anointed as the Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope Stephen IV, who would also anoint Louis's wife, Ermengarde, as the Holy Roman Empress. Ermengarde may have been a member of the Robertian family of Francia. We know that the couple had three sons at this time who were around adolescence when their parents were anointed by the Pope. Their names were Lothair, Pepin and Louis. So potentially this would mean that the vast Frankish Empire would be split between these three sons upon Louis the Pious' eventual passing. 
However, it was Louis's wife and queen, Ermengarde, who passed away, while still around only 40 years of age. Influential members of the Frankish court encouraged Louis to remarry, and so a bride show was organised. We have stumbled across the concept of bride shows before while talking about Byzantine emperors. The concept of the bride show being that eligible ladies from various realms were sent to the bride show for consideration to be the emperor's new wife. From this bride show, a woman called Judith was selected to become Louis's second wife, and she was the daughter of the Count of Bavaria, which would help to cement relationships between the Frankish crown and the Bavarian county within the Frankish Empire. Not long into the marriage, and Judith would give birth to a daughter, and then, more consequentially, a son called Charles. Judith was very keen to secure a future for her son, and as such she would secure the lands of Charles's ownership, the problem being that these lands were originally intended for the possession of Louis's first son by Ermengarde, namely Lothair. Lothair was obviously furious that his father, the king, would allow this to happen. What followed was a game of diplomacy and depositions as Lothair would look to make alliances with his brothers and various wealthy statesmen and landowners throughout the vast empire in order to take control of the empire and make all the decisions himself. Not everybody would support Lothair and chose to stick with his father, Louis the Pious, so any depositions were only temporary as Louis would come back. At one stage, Pope Gregory IV tried to arbitrate between the parties, but this failed to resolve the differences between Louis and his sons, who were now all involved. The stability of the Frankish Empire that existed under Charlemagne was now gone. Further dissent was due to come when Louis the Pious eventually died in the year 840, and of the four sons of Louis, three were still alive as he had outlived his second son by Ermengarde, namely Pepin of Aquitaine. On Louis the Pious's death, his eldest son Lothair made a move to take complete control of the entire Frankish Empire. Not only would this be against the will of his half-brother Charles, but it would also annoy his surviving brother, Louis, who had previously been his ally. Charles and Louis formed an alliance against Lothair and defeated him in battle, forcing him to acknowledge that he would have to respectfully negotiate terms with his brothers. The subsequent Treaty of Verdun in 843 would look to resolve the situation by splitting the Frankish Empire into three parts. Charles would receive the westernmost portion of the empire, similar in geography to the modern country of France. Charles is known to history as Charles the Bald, the youngest of Louis the Pious's sons, and we refer to his given realm as the West Francia. Charles the Bald was not bald, but may have been referred to as bald due to his initial lack of lands. The youngest of Louis the Pious's sons by his first wife, Ermengarde, was also called Louis, and he was granted all of the easternmost lands of the Frankish Empire, actually equivalent roughly to the modern countries of Germany and Austria. Louis is referred to in history as Louis the German, because his lands can be interpreted as an early version of the modern nation-state of Germany. As for the domineering Lothair, he would be granted the lands in the middle of these West Francia and East Francian lands, equivalently roughly to Netherlands, Belgium, Alsace, Switzerland and modern Italy. Lothair would also be allowed to retain the title of Emperor of the Romans, Organisation would be necessary as there were outsiders looking to take advantage of the fractures within the Frankish Empire, such as the Saracen Muslim warriors, Bulgarians, Magyars from Hungary and even Viking raiders in the north. Lothair's name is preserved in the name of the French borderland region of Lorraine, 
a derivative of the name Lotharingia, which was a core part of the original realm of Middle Francia, established during the Treaty of Verdun. The Decline of the Carolingians As the new kings produced more offspring, the fracturing of the Frankish Empire threatened to keep repeating itself and thus further debilitating any kind of central authority. Those external threats who were more willing to show a centralised approach to their rulership would surely pose a serious threat to Frankish lands as a consequence. The papacy would often be called on for arbitration purposes and this would also bolster the standing of the papacy on a political level in European affairs. The Pope would be able to get away with making decisions about successions that would have never stood up in previous decades. Certainly under the reigns of Charlemagne and Louis the Pious, the Pope would be obliged to listen to and be politically influenced by the Frankish Emperor. Now things were different. Fear of excommunication from the Roman Catholic Church was a reality for those rulers who did not heed the word of the Pope. Louis the German's youngest son was called Charles, known to history as Charles the Fat. Once again, we really don't know exactly why he's retrospectively referred to as Charles the Fat as there is no contemporary evidence of him being fat. Charles inherited East Francia after the death of his father, Louis the German, in 876 and due to a number of diplomatic twists and turns in the following years, Charles would become the King of Italy and the Emperor of the Romans and the King of West Francia by 884. This was as close as the Frankish Empire would come to the glory of the Carolingian Empire that existed at the beginning of this, the 9th century, under one monarch. During this time, Viking raiders would enter the River Seine from the English Channel and sail up to the city of Paris. This was not the first time that the Vikings had targeted Paris, as they had successfully raided it during the reign of Charles the Fat's uncle, Charles the Bald. Charles the Bald had to offer a substantial ransom to the Vikings to send them on their way. Now, the Vikings were back and ready to steal some more wealth for themselves. Initially, it would fall on the shoulders of Count Odo of Paris to defend the city against the Vikings, and he did so gallantly in the face of some terrorising Viking capabilities. Thanks to the leadership of Count Odo, Paris did not fall despite continued Viking attempts to crush the city into submission. Count Odo was depending on King Charles the Fat to come to Paris's aid and deal the Vikings a crushing military defeat that would frighten them away and make them think twice about ever attacking Paris again. When Charles the Fat arrived, he would pay the Vikings a measly tribute and convince them to travel further upriver into Burgundian territories to raid their lands instead. Even though the Vikings moved on, Count Odo would consider this to be a weak solution and knew that the Vikings would view the French as fair game should they ever be short of a bit of wealth in the future. So when Charles the Fat died in 888, Odo would ensure that Paris would not come under the rule of a disinterested king from an entitled Carolingian dynasty and put himself forward as the new king of West Francia, which he would be elected to do. This marked the end of the Carolingian period of French history. Carolingians would still play an important role in the following decades of French history, but Odo himself was a reversion. So for the first time since the rule of Pepin the Short, the Carolingian list of monarchs had been interrupted. Odo's rule marked the definitive change in political direction of West Francia from East Francia with West Francia now on its journey to becoming the Kingdom of France and East Francia on its journey to becoming the Kingdom of Germany and the Holy Roman Empire. The Vikings did indeed return quite famously in the year 911. One of the Viking chiefs involved in this particular raid of Frankish territory was a man called Rollo. Rollo would be granted lands on the northern coast of West Francia as a deterrent 
from making future raids and this would be the birth of the Duchy of Normandy which will feature heavily in future medieval stories within this volume not least of all when discussing the 11th century Duke William of Normandy who would become known as William the Conqueror after successfully invading the country of England across the sea on the British Isles. These were the results of the decisions of the West Francia king Charles the Simple and they would have seemed quite weak, but by now the governance of Frankish territories had descended into a bit of a free-for-all, with local dukes and counts gaining enough power to not have to blindly obey the Frankish royal rulers. This would lead to incursions by the Magyars into eastern Frankish lands during the 10th century that the Frankish rulers would show very little interest in dealing with, just simply leaving matters to the local governors. This lack of secular cohesiveness also allowed the church to begin to attain more political power and influence, with the Abbey of Cluny being a fine example of a Burgundian Benedictine monastery being granted independent lands that were exempt from accountability to the Frankish crown, only deeming themselves to be accountable to the Pope. The decline of royal secularism would lead Frankish lands towards a feudal system and we will examine feudal systems in later episodes. We will also explore the battles between East Francia, representing the Holy Roman Empire, and the Magyars. During the 10th century we focus on the Battle of Lechfeld. So we can pick up the diverged stories of the former Francian lands in future episodes too that will examine the Holy Roman Empire as well as Western monasticism and the papacy. Charles the Simple had succeeded Count Odo of Paris as the King of West Francia. Charles, as his name suggests, was a member of the Carolingian dynasty, whereas Odo wasn't. Odo, as we mentioned, was a member of the Robertians, and it would be Odo's brother Robert who would succeed Charles the Simple in 922, bringing the kingdom under Robertian rule again. Robert himself was a Count of Paris, a role which remained under the Robertians throughout the 10th century, but the King of West Francia was now an elected role, so it would no longer stay within one dynasty. During the 10th century, a powerful Count of Paris called Hugh, and later to be known as Hugh the Great, would have to make diplomatic moves in order to prevent nobles from the east from gaining too much influence over the West. His son, Hugh Capet, would compete to be elected as the King of West Francia in 987, and when he secured the throne he proceeded to make the succession hereditary, denying Carolingians any path back to the throne and signalling the beginning of the Capetian dynasty and period of French history. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast about the Franks. Of course, it was a continuation from uh, episode 15 where we introduced the Frankish kingdom and uh, Clovis and uh, the progress uh, through the mayors of the palace, through Charles Martel and then on to this week's episode about King Charlemagne and his successors. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, um, we're going to be exploring, we're going to be going back to the reign of Charlemagne and finding exactly what happened when he tried to retreat across the Pyrenees after getting involved in the politics of the um, of the Islamic Caliphate within Iberia. Um, was it a huge mistake? We'll find out next week. And then after that, we'll be looking at how uh, East Francia tackled the issue of the Magyars who were raiding their, their lands in the east so we'll be looking at the Battle of Lechfeld and uh, that's to look forward to over the course of the next couple of weeks of course then we'll be moving forward and uh, you know it's quite nice to introduce the Normans and the Vikings and um, you know that will open up a whole different area of Europe which uh, contains the Anglo-Saxons as well and um, so we'll be introducing a lot of the medieval stuff of the British Isles and uh, Scandinavia um, lots to look forward to over the course of the next coming weeks but uh, as for now let's move on
The Ancient World Cup. So this week was the final group of the group stages of the Ancient World Cup. And so it's Group P. And in this group, we uh, we find ourselves with Shang China, the first confirmed dynasty of China, although the Tia was before them, but um, we have no... Um, archaeological evidence of the Tia, only uh, only written stories. The Shang, we have archaeological evidence, so we can say they're the earliest uh, known dynasty of China. The Assyrians, who had such a long and rich history, many, many centuries of uh, of different um, comings and goings, and, uh, and uh, you know, they, they, they lost their empire and then regained it again, um, very interesting story, the Assyrians. The Qin Chinese, who were a brief dynasty, headed by uh, Qin Shi Huang uh, in the main part, who um, who really was the driving force behind this dynasty and uh, was the man who uh, is regarded as the first emperor, the first true emperor of China, and um, had a, that great terracotta army built as well to guard his, uh, to guard his tomb. Um, and then finally, the Achaemenid Persians, the first main Persian influence, um, who really uh, were the ones who took over the Assyrian lands after a brief interregnum, if you like, um, uh, for want of a better phrase, let's say, uh, by the Medes and the Babylonians uh, when the Assyrians were actually conquered. So they sort of uh, were the successors of the Assyrians, albeit not immediately. And uh, they, of course, had those great campaigns against the, the Greeks and, uh, you know, so done some great stuff like the first, you know, they were road builders before the Romans. So um, wonderful culture, the Achaemenes. Let's see how they stacked up and how you voted for them. And, uh, of course, the first two uh, advance um, into the next round and the bottom two will go out of the competition. So let's find out who won the group with 49% of the vote, a very healthy uh, portion of the vote. Uh, winners of the group were the Assyrians. In second place, with uh, also a huge 43% of the vote, so we really had two runaway winners in this group, with 43% of the vote and in second place, the Achaemenid Persians. Uh, which means, sadly, uh, we lose the two Chinese dynasties. Um, the uh, the Qin Chinese uh, with 6% of the vote and the Shang Chinese with 3% of the vote. So uh, not able to uh, emulate the success of the Han Chinese uh, earlier in the round, who I believe, if I'm not mistaken, are the only Chinese culture who've made it through to the knockout phases. So that's it now. Um now, during our um, during our our attempts to knock out thirty two teams and carry thirty two teams through, we actually um, come across a bit of a stumbling block, where in two of the groups we couldn't determine two outright winners, and uh, they were Group C and Group F. So we've got a little bit of tidying up to do in order to get down to 32 teams. There's, there's really, there's 34 teams left in the competition and we've got to try and find a way to get rid of two of them. So what we're going to do, we're going to have a little bit of a practice for the next round. So we're going to have two weeks of head-to-head knockouts here and they're going to be first round playoff matches. So in the first match, which will be uh, this one coming up on this upcoming week we're going to try and split apart those two that could not be split apart in group c the israelites and the sassanids and then following that the following week in we're going to um try and split apart those two that couldn't be split apart from group f the judeans and the scythians so um that's what we've got coming up over the next couple of weeks and then we can crack on with round two, which is a straight knockout format. And uh, we're just going to keep knocking out one team each week until we get a winner. So it all starts next week with the round one playoffs. And we're going to be looking at the Israelites. Um, very famous for their um, their very biblical um, history and um such legendary stories such as David and Goliath and, of course, the, the United Kingdom of Israel, um, including King Solomon um, and uh, 
and all of that. And then um, their opponents, the Sasanian Persians, who were some quite uh, quite a, a time later than the Israelites. So the Israelites were looking back to the beginnings of the first millennium BCE. For the Sasanian Persians, we were going right the way forward into the middle of the first millennium. And they uh, the, the Sasanians uh, pretty much deposed the Parthians, who were the uh, the nemesis of the Roman Empire um, during its glory years. And, um, and the Sasanians were really there battling against um, Eastern Roman um, Empire, um, which would become the Byzantines and were, and were an integral part of the battles that led to the rise of uh, the Islamic Caliphate as well. So uh, the fact that they battled so hard against the Byzantines ended up being their downfall. So that's um, what we've got coming up next week. The Israelites versus the Sasanians. Um, look out for your ability to vote on Facebook, Twitter and the Tapper Talk Facebook, uh, not the Tapper Talk Facebook group, the Tapper Talk discussion group, uh, which you can find by going to the History of the World podcast.com website and clicking on the interact link. Listener messages and reviews. I'm going to start with some uh, Facebook reviews. Um, I've I've got to make an apology to Andy Wankel because I've I've called him Patrick by accident. I didn't mean to do that. I'm sorry, Andy. Um, it was in response to him writing. Uh, he he actually wrote to me before the Frankish episode saying this is a preemptive message and possibly foregone if you've already written your episode on the Franks. But I'd appreciate any knowledge and or resources you have about King Clovis besides Gregory of Tours. Um, I always hear lectures and podcasts citing Gregory as the main source for Clovis and early Frankish history, but I've never seen any other sources, and I'd be interested if you're aware of any that are written in English. Um, certainly, um, I think um, Gregory's uh, probably the only person whose uh, documents have, have survived in any way. I, I don't believe um, there are any other sources other than later scribes um, of, of centuries afterwards. So Gregory of Tours is essential for having us having any knowledge of Clovis. So unfortunately, yeah, I'm, I'm really not aware of any other sources, um, certainly not um, anything as close to as contemporary as Gregory's. Um, Patrick Walsh wrote in saying, love your podcast, it's top shelf stuff, almost up to date with it. But, uh, thank you for writing in, Patrick, very kind of you. Uh, Willa McClatchy um, Cumming has written in saying, love your podcast, Chris, I'm learning so much. Um, and then uh, let's move over to the emails. We did get an email this week from Audrey uh, Marchon Marchono. Mark, I'm sorry if I've mispronounced your name. Thank you. I appreciate so very much the wonderful podcast that you provide. My name is Audrey. I live in the United States, Fullerton near Disneyland. I love your podcast. We're so lucky to have such a well-informed podcaster. Thank you. I do not come from an academic family, did not do well in school. I'm learning so, so much from your podcast. You help me to learn what would otherwise be a very intimidating subject. You bring learning history to life. I again thank you. Oh, by the way, I love your theme music. It's a great choice. Did you compose your own music for the show? I know the show is about the history of the world, but I would love to learn more about you, the podcaster. Um, thank you, Audrey. Um, there is a an About Me page on the website that you can find out uh, a little bit more about me. Um, not too much, though. I'm, I, I, I don't tend to uh, like to uh, talk a lot about myself. Um, but um, I do, I, you know, I do often disclose that I, I am not university educated. Um, I'm self-educated, really, after learning uh, more about history, I decided to devote a lot of my spare time to reading about history and collecting books um, that uh, enabled me to have the, the desire to write this podcast. And um, so that's really my story. I'm, uh, I'm an Englishman from Essex uh, in England, near London. Um, I'm in my 40s. 
that's about that's a, about as much as I can tell you at this stage. So, um, that well, that's of any kind of interest in my opinion. But nonetheless, thank you, Audrey, and uh, yeah, certainly go along to the About Me page to learn a little bit more about um my interest in history. Certainly, uh, thank you for writing in it, and um, you know, for anyone that does write in, um, don't forget you can support the podcast by rating and reviewing it wherever you listen to us, and of course. Uh, we do take financial sponsorship as well. So um, if you want to uh, make a regular financial contribution to the podcast, you can do so by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, clicking on the Patreon link, and um, then um, just going along and um, consider making a monthly contribution. When you do so... You will become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati for the rest of your days. And um, we welcome in this week TJ Harrison into the History of the World podcast Illuminati. So thank you, TJ. And uh, by all means, don't be shy. You know, step forward. Um, You can donate as little or as much as you like. And uh, we look forward to... um, We look forward to inviting you to be a part of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and, of course, giving you those rewards which um, you can qualify for. Well, that's it for another week. Uh, Next week we'll be talking about Charlemagne and his uh, very perilous trip across the Pyrenees, which Charlemagne himself probably thought was going to be um, one of a very uh, successful mission across in Iberian lands. And uh, when he discovered that it wasn't going his way and decided to retreat, um, he got a bit of a receipt um, on his way back and we're going to find out about that next week. Until then, thanks very much for listening and don't forget to be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.